All right, this is Changing the Coal Fields. My name is Brandon. I'm your host. I'm founder and CEO of Coalfield Development. I'm so excited. This week, we have Scott Atkins, who is the director of Workforce West Virginia. Workforce development is part and parcel of what Coalfield Development, uh, my organization, is all about. So this is one I've been really excited about. Scott is a leader in the state that I have a ton of respect for. And Scott, really appreciate your time today. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here, Brandon. So did you grow up in, in West Virginia? Actually, I did. It's it's kind of ironic we're having this conversation. I grew up in Logan County, uh, lived in, in Buffalo Creek prior to the 1972 flood, which many of your listeners may remember in February of 1972. My father was a coal miner, worked in the coal industry for nearly 50 years. Wow. Uh, actually, uh, lied about his age uh, when he was 15 years old, so he could go to work, had a big family, lots of folks you know, back in the 40s uh, were, were like that. And so he was able to, to go to work in the coal industry and had a great career. It was a great uh, opportunity for him to support his family and to provide uh, for me and my sibling. So 40, 44 plus years uh, with the uh, Island Creek Coal Company in, in Logan County. After 72, the Buffalo Creek flood, um, we moved to the other end of Logan County to, to Chapmanville. So I, I grew up there, attended Marshall University, undergraduate, have a master's in environmental sciences. I taught school for about four or five years, Brandon, and then saw an opportunity to, to go to work for, with my dad's company. Uh, he had nothing but glowing things to say about Island Creek Coal Company. And so there was an opportunity for me to join the organization. I did that. I pursued a master's in environmental engineering and worked as an environmental engineer for Island Creek Coal Company, subsequently purchased by Consol Energy for about 15 years. And uh, spent most of that time working in eastern Kentucky, coal fields in southern West Virginia. Um, when Consol purchased, when Occidental Petroleum sold Island Creek Coal Company, it was sold to Consol Energy, which is based out of Pittsburgh. I was shipped to St. Louis uh, for about three years and had the opportunity to work in the Midwest and, and uh, the southwest part of the country dealing with uh, coal mining, with mining and uh, coal extraction. So, you know, I, I can really appreciate some of the challenges that you folks deal with in your organization in trying to get uh, folks retooled, reskilled, retrained that, that have, have left the coal industry for the past, I would say, 15 years uh, looking for different occupations. So I have, a, I have a huge respect for that. It's one of those things that's easier said than done. Huh? It, it, it is. You know, it's a culture thing. And, you know, when I grew up, I can remember as a kid, uh, all the coal companies had uh, summer programs for all the kids of the dads and moms who worked there who wanted to keep that sort of continuous participation in the coal industry moving forward. My brother did and was subsequently was a coal miner for, you know, 30 plus years. I, that's not the case, obviously, today uh, with, with how mining has been affected. So there's, there's a huge difference there. But then after that, Brandon, I left the coal industry, had an opportunity to go to law school, uh, went to, to WVU Law School, graduated when I was 40. So I was a kind of a non-traditional student uh, graduating from law That's school. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it was it was fun. It was a challenge. <laughs> so I did that and, and changed jobs a few times, ended up here at Workforce, great place to work, a uh, great opportunity to make a difference for people who struggle. You know, we we deal, there's two really, well, there's multiple components to Workforce. Most folks know us as the unemployment agency. Right. And those are the folks that have more month than they do money when they lose a job. And so we're here to provide that service. But, you know, the, the, the bigger transformation that we're attempting here at Workforce 
with the with the direction of Secretary Gonch and Governor Justice is to kind of reinvent who we are. Uh, everybody knows this is unemployment, but we need to take that next step. We need to start thinking about reemployment. Mm-hmm. And so we're working on a model right now to revolutionize our 17 field offices so that we're helping folks uh, obtain training, uh, soft skills, tra- you know, soft skills training if they need that, help them look for a job, uh, training, uh, credential attainment. So we're working really hard to sort of transform from that perception of just being unemployment to helping folks find jobs. Because let's face it, that's what we're here for. Right on. And, and we, Coalfield Development, we consider ourselves a partner with you in that mission. I, I want to get back to that in a little bit, but I am curious. So were you were you living on Buffalo Creek when that flood happened? Yes, sir. Uh, Brandon, wow. I was in the second grade, and I remember my dad was a supervisor at the time with Island Creek Coal Company, and it happened on an early Saturday morning about 8.30, and uh, there were some folks who you know came down trying to warn everybody to, to leave, and so my dad, being a supervisor, had keys to all the, the gates to the mining property, and we were able to go up, up a hill, it was called Kelly Mountain, come down on the other side where we could actually see Buffalo Creek. And so wow. we viewed uh, from, from about 250 feet up a mountain everything that transpired on Buffalo Creek in, in February 72. Wow. That had to have left a big impact. It, it did. You know, we lost, I lost uh, uh, several relatives, an aunt, uncle, several cousins. And, you know, it, it, was, it was tough. And, and, of course, I was relatively young, but it was, it was a scary time. And, and folks kind of forget about the impact that I mean, coal mining has been great for West Virginia, but there's been another impact too, you know, that we have to deal with. And um, I think there was 106 or 108 folks who who lost their lives that February uh, morning of 72. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's probably, it's gotta be one of the bigger mining related disasters, you know, in American history, I would imagine. It, it is. And, you know, there's, there's always an upside to every tragedy. I, th- I think there's an right. opportunity to do better, be right. better, learn more change practices and procedures. And really that sort of bore, that bore out MSHA, Mining Safety and Health Administration that we know today, that came out of Buffalo Creek. A lot of folks don't know that. There, there were several uh, legal principles that came out of that. The, the intentional infliction of emotional distress uh, was developed by the law school out of, uh, out of Cincinnati, the University of Cincinnati. That came out of Buffalo Creek. It's used all the time now for uh, civil litigation when it comes to, uh, you know, intentional infliction of emotional stress. So, so there was a lot of positive that came out of it. And obviously, you know, Buffalo Creek was rebuilt. As you can imagine, the creek was moved, the roads were moved, new houses were there. And, um, uh, you know, it changed the the face of Logan County. And I, I think personally, it changed the face of the coal mining communities. Absolutely. Is it fair to say, so I get asked, you know, there's a lot of attention on West Virginia right now from national media because our senators are very prominent right now and there's a lot of climate change discussions. And when those happen, people say, well, what about coal country? What do they think? My main message, I think, is just that West Virginia and our relationship to coal, is it fair to say it's a little bit complicated? I mean, it's done a lot of good for a lot of us. It's put a lot of food on the on the table. Right. But it's a it's a tough industry, too. And uh, how would you describe West Virginia's relationship to coal? Well, I mean, coal, you know, we thought coal was going to be around 100 years. If you look at uh, some of the old blue books uh, from the late 60s, early 70s, McDowell County, Logan County, you're talking 70, 
80,000 people residing Amazing. in those counties. Amazing. And clearly we're, we're nowhere near there at this point. Right. And so the, I think the, there was a thought at one time that coal would keep Southern West Virginia at the forefront of everything going on in West Virginia. And to some extent, the Eastern part of the country. Well, we all know now that didn't happen because there's so much flux within the coal industry. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have left the coal industry. We get calls probably a couple of times a week from coal companies looking for miners because there, there's been such a, a downturn in the mining industry for mm. so many years. There's no there's no new red hats. There's no folks in the in the pipe being trained on how to run a, a miner. And so they're stealing workers from each other. And with it, with the um, uh, the increase in the need for metallurgical coal, the coal industry is is, is re- being revived in West Virginia. I think we have more coal miners today than we did in, in 2018, 2019, uh, who, are, who are working the faces of those mines. So, And just for folks who might not know, metallurgical coal is for steel production versus other coal, which is more for power production. Yeah, yeah, bituminous coal is just going to be for power. And that's where the most concern comes, if you think about it from an environmental perspective, is that bituminous coal, because it typically is high sulfur content, there's some acid mine drainage associated with that too, as far as, you know, once you're done mining, what happens with the spoils. So, but yeah, but the influx of metallurgical coal has revitalized to some degree West Virginia on the national level and, and really the international level. I, I don't know what those experts exports are right now with metallurgical coal, but they're huge. It's one of the biggest products that we send out of West Virginia to other countries is metallurgical coal. Huge need for it right now. Scott, what are some other, so you mentioned that actually there is some some demand, some need for, for job training in the mining sector. What are some other uh, opportunity areas that you're seeing for, for new employment, especially in the southern part of the state? Yeah, southern part of the state, you, you know, again, we could talk about the challenges of southern part of the state uh, for several hours. But, you know, we recently did a uh, employer survey, which which included employers from the southern part of West Virginia, but but also the entire state. And overwhelmingly, what employers said was they need folks who have technical skills, you know, folks who can work with their hands, folks who can participate in manufacturing. And overwhelmingly, they said that they didn't need folks with four-year degrees. And so, you know, historically, we tell kids who are coming through school, get a four-year degree, get a four-year degree, get a four-year degree. We don't talk about welding. We don't talk about carpentry. Mm. We don't talk about HVAC. We don't talk about CDLs. All those areas I just mentioned are in high demand in, in West Virginia, really across the country. If you had a CDL license today, you can go anywhere you want to and work. And the average wage in West Virginia for a CDL driver right now is about $1,600 a week. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a living wage, and, and we don't talk about that enough. And so that employer survey really brought to the forefront to us here at Workforce that we need to focus more on getting information, training programs out, much like what you do at Coalfields Development. You know, you're looking at those skills and helping folks develop those sort of technical skills that uh, sometimes our, our education folks miss out on. Yeah, it's it's weird. On the one hand, we know our economy's not as strong as we want it to be. But on the other, we do keep hearing businesses have positions available that they can't seem to be able to fill. So is it, are both those things sort of true at the same time? Well, I think they are. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of research out. And I think John Deskins up at WVU has done some research and, and made some comments recently. You know, it, it is, it's a tough paradigm. And so 
how, how do you fix it? How do you, you know, do that job match? Uh, unfortunately, if you look at labor force participation rate at 55.2% right now in West Virginia, the lowest in the country, the lowest, uh, we've had the lowest labor force participation rate, as you know, since 1976, when we started keeping those records. Right. And so how do we fix that? And we're, 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 we're looking at uh, some granular data around labor force participation. And what we have found, Brandon, is that those folks between, we, we lag behind the national average in the age groups of 18 to 24 and over the age of 50. Okay. And so if we could figure out why those 18 to 24 uh, individuals aren't working, uh, we, we can make a difference. There's probably more uh, quantitative data for those folks over the age of 50 that we could, you know, it's lots of different things that we could talk about for those folks over the age of 50. We've, we've been working with workforce has been working with the state department of education. And what we have found is that 30% of all the graduating seniors don't have a career plan, mm. meaning they're not going to the military. They're not going to a technical school. They're not going to a four-year university. And so they're kind of lost in the system. They don't know what to do. And when we can figure out how to case manage those kids or those young adults, those 18 to 24 folks, uh, you know, get them, get them employed, get them the confidence and hope they need to be able to perform at a high level or the skills they need, you know, to help them figure out what they're good at. You know, when I grew up, we took aptitude tests. And so we kind of knew, or at least their parents knew what we were, had the potential to be good at. We don't really do that today. And so a lot of kids who are leaving high school have no idea what they could be good at or what they would be good at. And we have to figure that out. It, it's, it's not going to be an easy lift, but I think it's worth the effort because if we can, if we can increase that labor force participation rate, or if we're going to, we got to start with that age group of 18 to 24. I really like how you're thinking about that. And, you know, I feel like that transition from high school to adulthood, if you do have a plan it's like a bridge, you know, your job or your college experience or your apprenticeship. It's this bridge into adulthood and it launches your whole career. If, if you don't have a plan, it's like that transition becomes this canyon and you might make some bad decisions as a young adult that you could spend your whole life trying to trying to make up for from then on. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. You know, uh, folks on the national level and really even in West Virginia, we talk about substance use disorder and, and that's a factor. And it's a huge factor for that for that age group, 18 to 24. And I think, as you said, if we could help get them into training, get them into a job, give them that hope, you know, uh, give them that meaningfulness as, as it relates to them and their family or society. I think we can correct a lot of that. And so I, I, when you think about substance use disorder, it's more than just treatment. Yes. We've got to, we've got to, we've got to intervene before we ever get there. And part of that intervention is giving folks hope, giving them a job, you know, and giving them, giving them something to look forward to and a way to support their families. Amen to that. Well, what are some of the, clearly you're, you're, you've done a lot of deep thinking. You're a key leader in workforce development in the state. What are some of the big changes you've seen over the last couple of years related to workforce development in West Virginia? Well, I think we've gotten better at identifying the, what the needs are the employers. And I tell my folks all the time, when we think about our client, we have to think about our client from the perspective of the employer. Because if we don't have employers who have living wage jobs, then we can have 50 people lined up ready to work. But if we don't have a place for them to work, it doesn't mean anything. And so I think historically, we've looked at it the other way, 
We want to train people and then hope there's a job available for them once they get that credential, that certification, that degree. But now we're, we're looking at it differently. We're starting to work with the employer community, trying to figure out what your needs are today, what your needs are tomorrow, and then what are going to be your needs two years from now. And then once we fully understand that, then we, when I say we, I'm thinking about the public workforce delivery system as a whole, which would include us, organizations like, like Coalfields, uh, K-12, higher ed, community technical college, all those folks. Once we can figure out what those needs are, then we can develop programs and, and figure out which folks really would be good at those skills or have those skills and get them trained, get them credentialed, get them ready to meet the needs of what the employers are saying they got, they're going to need in the near future and then you know two or three years out. So I think we've, we've kind of flipped that paradigm that we're not looking at, at training from the, the perspective of the individual, but we're looking at training from the perspective of what the employer needs are. Hmm. Are you feeling more hopeful about, do you think we can get that labor force number up in, over the next decade? I think we can. I really do. I'm optimistic about that. And, you know, the governor put together this uh, blue ribbon task force and he brought all the, the major players involved with workforce development, at least from the, the state aid, the state agency right. sort of perspective. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, we need to be better at what we do. You know, it, it's, it's a sad day in any state when an employer wants to come here and we can't we can't guarantee a trained up, ready to work workforce. And so it, it's uh, it's difficult to ask Toyota to expand if we don't have folks that Toyota can count on uh, for expansion uh, for their workforce. So I, I'm very optimistic about it. I think we can get there. It's going to be a, it's going to be a challenge. But I think working together, being creative, doing a lot of the work like like Coalfields has done. And I hope we have a chance to talk about that because I, I think folks really need to know and understand what kind of impact you're having in Southern West Virginia. And, and hopefully we can uh, emulate that and replicate it throughout the state because, you know, taking those folks who have some sort of barrier to employment, getting them trained, confident, ready to work is a big deal to improve that labor force participation rate. Can, can you explain for the listeners who maybe are not as well versed in, in workforce development, when we say barriers barriers to employment, what are what are some examples of those? What do we mean by that? Yeah, I mean the they, the the barriers could be a, a lack of work experience, a lack of of skills or social skills. It could be a substance use disorder problem that you know that, that they've experienced. It could be uh, some sort of encounter with law enforcement. So it really it really runs the gamut. Uh, what those barriers to employment could be, and and how does poverty factor into all of this as well, especially for, for Southern West Virginia, is that, how, how does, how does that factor in here? Yeah, well, poverty does. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, folks who don't have the resources to, to uh, you know, pursue the training or, or go to school, even though there's, there's dollars available for them, there could be a transportation issue. One of the issues we write, we face right now in West Virginia is childcare. We have a lot of, a lot of, uh, particular females who are now home taking care of kids or if kids have to be quarantined. And it's difficult for the employer, let's face it, to hold a position open for three or four months if a parent needs to be home, for example, over the summer because there was lack of child care in 2020 to take care of their kids. So, you know, poverty all, help, you know, contributes to that because let's face it, if you've got resources, you can go anywhere you want to work. You can relocate. Uh, if you If you're living in and I'm just making up stuff, but if you're living in 
uh, Welch, West Virginia, McDowell County, right. and the jobs in Charlotte. But you've got to move to Charlotte. You've got to have good transportation. You have to have a, a down deposit on a house or a deposit on a rental. You have to pay deposits for utilities. If you can't do that, then you're stuck. You're not going to Charlotte, even though it's the perfect job and you would be really good at it because you don't have the resources to get there. Are the jobs that are open in our state right now, are they mostly in sort of like Huntington, Charleston, Metro Valley, Eastern Panhandle? Is is there a regionality to those openings? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the unemployment rate or, or look at the number of people working, Eastern Panhandle, clearly lowest unemployment rate. Most most of the, the population is up, is working up there. Uh, Central West Virginia is is huge, and obviously the the Charleston, Huntington, Putnam corridor. There are you know jobs available there, uh, but again, you go down south because of infrastructure. Well, infrastructure is a problem in Southern West Virginia. Um, if you have a lack of infrastructure, you don't have businesses moving there. You'll have opportunities for people to go to work yep. unless they relocate. So, so if somebody's saying, "Hey, I, I just saw a headline. We have all these jobs open in West Virginia, but people aren't filling those jobs." That must mean we're lazy. And I think what I'm hearing now is it's not so much that we're lazy; it's that we have these barriers. Could be transportation. Could be that the the job that's available is two hours away from the person who's unemployed. Could be childcare could be substance use disorder, mental, emotional challenge. So there's a human element to all this, right? Absolutely. And, you, you know, I have to say, when I, when I talk to employers that show up at workforce, man, they love the West Virginians that they have working. All you have to do is talk to the folks at Toyota. Yeah. I mean, one of the most yeah. productive Toyota plants in the in the world. That's awesome. You know, resides in Putnam County. Right. And so continue expansion. I think they'll expand even more uh, in the next two to three years. So it's 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 not a matter of folks being lazy. I think it's just a matter of overcoming some of those barriers and helping folks understand what their opportunities are. How does economic diversification fit in here? Has it been complicated? I'm talking mainly about Southern West Virginia here, Scott. That that our workforce, you know, 20 years ago, you probably could get a job in the mines with just a little bit of vocational training and make really good money. And not really, and, and and be set for life, as I understand it from from talking with folks. So, has our lack of economic diversification maybe set us behind in the workforce development training system that a diversified, healthy economy really needs? Yeah, I think so. In particular, in Southern West Virginia, because again, if you look at uh, Central West Virginia, North Central West Virginia, Eastern Panhandle, right. Uh, the the economy is so diverse. I mean, we have aeronautical companies in in uh, Central West Virginia. We have huge manufacturers over in the Eastern Panhandle. Things that we don't have in Southern West Virginia, and we don't have it for for several reasons. Uh, infrastructure, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have job ready sites uh, available for companies to pursue. Uh, we don't have the same trained workforce in the southern part of the state as we do in central West Virginia and in the Eastern Panhandle. And what we have had has been coal, but that's sort of a boom and bust situation, right? It is. I mean, let's face it, even though we have a, an uptick in metallurgical coal sales right now, uh, how long will that last? You know, is it going to last two years, five years, 10 years uh, with the constant changes in, in environmental requirements? Uh, what, what will coal look like with carbon emissions? Uh, will we have power plants in 10 years from now? 
who are burning coal in West Virginia. So, you know, those are those are really sort of unknowns and, and sort of political in nature as well. So, but yeah, but we, we're not diversified, obviously, in Southern West Virginia. You, you mentioned geography, you know, for folks who aren't from here, the difference in the Eastern Panhandle and Southern West Virginia, Eastern Panhandle, there's enough flat property. You really could build a, a million square foot distribution center, which that's what the Amazons of the world want, right? They want a million square foot. You literally could not fit that in in most parts of most counties in Southern West Virginia, right? No, I mean, you couldn't. You're talking about moving a million cubic yards of material just to get a site halfway ready. And then utilities is huge too, you know, because even if you get a site like that developed, it's typically typically going to be on top of a mountain somewhere and not, you know, not really conducive to a strong, uh, versatile infrastructure. So if, if we've got entrepreneurs in the southern part of the state who are trying to diversify the economy, it's going to be more niche, right? It's going to be more small business, might be online based. We got to get the broadband better, but there might be potential for creative online tech businesses. Five employees here, 10 employees there. But hey, in a town of 1,500, a new business of 10 employees that are well-paid is a pretty big deal. I guess my question is, does workforce development look different for small business than it does for big business? Yeah, Brandon, you're exactly right. It has to be because, again, you're not going to have you're not going to have a Toyota that's going to hire you know, 1,200 workers in Logan County because you're not going to have the infrastructure capability there. And so it's going to be niche businesses. And, and so we have to think about it when we, when we think about training and working uh, with prospective employers or entrepreneurs, what are, what are those needs going to be? Yeah, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of successful niche businesses in Southern West Virginia, I think, that we could learn from and, and uh, help emulate. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think sometimes small business development and then workforce development are thought of as like two totally different things. I think for the, to help diversify Southern West Virginia, we got to bring those two worlds, worlds together. You sort of got to be doing both at the same time in a sense. Absolutely. I mean, we're not going to be successful if we don't. Well, Scott, let me, let me circle back just to you as a, as an individual West Virginian and uh, we'll move towards our wrap up here. You mentioned going out to St. Louis and, and out West. I wonder so many of us, when we leave the state, we always think as kids, we got to get out. And then as adults, we're out and we just want to get back. Is, was that your experience? Was it hard being out of state for you? It was really difficult. I lived, uh, I lived in a town called St. Charles, which was uh, West of uh, St. Louis, just across the Missouri river. And uh, it, it was a it was a learning experience for me, but I can tell you, uh, two weeks there, I was looking for jobs back here. <laughs> <laughs> I was ready to come back two weeks. Yeah, I mean, I got to learn a lot. I spent one winter up in Minot, North Dakota, which was uh, an interesting experience. Spent some time down in Arizona, New Mexico, uh, South Dakota, Western. Spent a lot of time in Illinois, okay. Southern Illinois, okay. around the Rin Lake area, Western Kentucky, doing environmental work, uh, you know, around the coal industry. Great experiences, but uh, yeah, we always want to, something about us West Virginians, we just always want to get back home, don't we? It's a better story to tell than an experience to live. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's like the start of a country song or something. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And then you mentioned something I did not know about you going back to law school when you were 40. Can you tell me about sort of that process of what made you decide to do that and how challenging was that sort of mid mid career to make that shift? You know, it was a tough decision. I had gotten into law school 
in my early 20s down in uh, John Marshall in, in Atlanta, Georgia, and decided not to go. And it was something I thought I always wanted to do. Just wasn't quite sure if I wanted to put three more years in, start out, you know, uh, working 60 hours a week like most lawyers do coming out, out of law school. And uh, I went to work. Um, it's a funny story. When I, I left uh, St. Louis and I came back here to work for a coal company called Fola Coal Company up in Clay and Nicholas County. And I left there and had an opportunity to go to work uh, for the Senate president at the time and then ultimately for the attorney general and uh, really kind of fell in love with the opportunities that law could provide and uh, decided at, at 40 that I'd go back to go to school, go to law school. So I actually worked full time and went to law school full time. Wow. Yeah. I commuted. It's a funny story. I lived in Morgantown the first year uh, I was married and my wife was pregnant and I commuted four days a week from St. Albans to Morgantown uh, wow. for two years. Interesting experience. So you uh, you owed that diploma to your wife then? I do <laughs> absolutely. She would uh, she would take the kids and uh, away so I could study. And uh, I bought every every law school book I had. I bought on tape. That was back in the cassette days, <laughs> and I listened to it for three hours, six hours a day. I listened to those recordings over and over. And, uh, you know, learn, really learn law school that way, honestly. That's incredible. So the point of the story is if you're determined, you can do it. You know, if you've got the desire to take that next step, either in your career or education, uh, you can do it. It just takes a little effort Love and it. determination. We talk about with our people, lifelong learning, you know, that you got to it's not like in a modern world or, or probably any world. You don't just get a degree or get a certificate and 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 say, I've made it. you got to constantly be learning, finding new experiences, staying sharp, welcoming challenges, right? You do. I mean, uh, even at my age, if I had an opportunity to, to go back to school to do a couple of things I'd like to, I would. And even, you know, again, at my age, I'd still do it. So you have to be, you have to be a lifelong learner because if you don't, because the skills always change, the workforce always changes. Yeah. And so you have to, you have to evolve with it. You've talked about some changes that you've seen, some changes you've been part of, are there some big changes that you still really you've not seen yet that you really hope to see before your career wraps up? Yeah, I do. You know, we talked about the, the labor force participation rate. Yeah. And yeah. I would love to see us really get a handle on that and move the needle in a positive way. And, you know, we can sit around the table and probably identify 20 different root causes of labor, labor force participation rate. But I think it really goes back to culture. Uh, and, you, you, you know, getting people and when I say culture, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, we have to give uh, people hope. And, and I've said that yeah. multiple times uh, during this call. But if people have hope and they have an opportunity to, to improve their position in life, most people will do it. Nobody wakes up today. And I tell this story all the time. Nobody wakes up today and says, I'm going to make a bad decision and screw my life up before the end of the day is over. It just happens. Mm. And it happens mostly because we're not prepared to handle those things that we face on a daily basis. And so if we could teach folks to handle that, instill that hope and pride in who they are and what they do, I think we can change that labor. It's not just a training issue. It's a cultural issue. It's a human perspective issue that yes. we have to, again, give, give folks hope and opportunity because I'm convinced that if you do, folks will take advantage of that. Could not agree more. My final, that was very well said. My final question, I am just, I'm still struck, Scott, by thinking about little Scott Atkins as a second grader up on Kelly Mountain 
looking down at, at Buffalo Creek. And that was such a significant uh, event. And I just wonder if, if you could share just a little bit more about what that was like from your perspective and how growing up in Logan County, not just experiencing Buffalo Creek, but growing up in Logan County in a, in a, in a coal family, what gives you hope for the future of, of coal country? Well, you know, as a second grader, it was, it was very scary. Uh, it was scary that we were running through the house trying to collect everybody, collect the animals, make sure that we, we, we all got in the truck and headed up that hill. There were a lot, a lot of people following us. You can imagine the chaos in the community. And, and, and Buffalo Creek is very narrow. And, I, you know, there's, there's a road and a creek and two mountains on either side, basically. Yeah. There's very little flat, flat land in between the creek and the road and the mountain. So it, it was very scary. But, you know, one thing that, that really being around the coal industry, being around coal miners, being around coal uh, families is that they're resilient. They're tough. You know, yeah. they, they really are. And they're hard workers. I don't think I've met too many miners that really uh, that didn't, you know, bust it every day to give 100% of who they are uh, to their job so they can support their families. And so really coming out of Southern West Virginia, I think it's some of the toughest people in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. I think it's some of the most determined folks. And everywhere I've traveled, everywhere, I always run into people from Logan County. I don't care if you go to, <laughs> to Morgantown, <laughs> you go to Charlotte, you go to wherever you go, you're going to run into somebody uh, from Logan County. So I think Logan County and Southern West Virginia in particular has contributed a lot to this country and definitely a lot to, to West Virginia. Yeah. And that can't get lost. I mean, this, this country was really built on the backs of coal miners and other workers too, but without the power that was generated by coal, you don't have the skyscrapers, you don't have the bridges. Uh, a lot of people aren't able to turn the lights on, right? We can never forget that. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing that folks miss in, uh, in Southern West Virginia with coal is the diversity of folks who live there. You know, we had a lot of mm-hmm. immigrants who came to West Virginia specifically to work in the coal industry because, you know, right. it, it was a hard job, right. but it was a well-paying job. You could support your family on it. And so you could you can go up and down. If we had phone books today and look at the last names of the people living in Southern West Virginia, you're going to find a tremendous amount of diversity. That definitely gets lost. And, uh, and you know, that that's the foundation for a, for a new economy you know, that, that coal's still a part of, but as we add new things to the mix, new manufacturing, bring in solar, bring in wind, uh, bring it, support small business, support agriculture, um, that foundation of, of diversity and resilience and just pure toughness with that, a, a new economy does become possible. Absolutely. I agree. Well, Scott, thank you so much for, for your time today. I've learned more about you than I knew. I think our listeners are going to appreciate that. And Thank you for everything you're doing for our state. Brandon, I appreciate it. And thank you for what you and your organization is doing as well. You bet. We'll be staying in touch and working together. Sounds good. Take care. All right, Scott. Thank you. Change in the Coalfields is a podcast created by Coalfield Development at the West Edge Factory in Huntington, West Virginia. This episode was hosted by Brandon Dennison and produced and edited by JJN Multimedia. Become a part of our mission to rebuild the Appalachian economy by going to our website, coalfield-development.org, to make a donation. You can email us anytime at info at coalfield-development.org and subscribe to our newsletter for up-to-date information on the podcast. 
You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching for Coalfield Development. Check back soon for more episodes.